0: Welcome to the Inside Infrastructure Podcast, a podcast that explores the ins and outs of infrastructure policy and the people behind it. I'm your host, Janice Lee. I'm a partner in PwC Australia's integrated infrastructure team. Alongside my co-host, Adrian Dwyer, CEO of Infrastructure Partnerships Australia, we're so excited to be bringing you the stories of prominent leaders that are shaping the future of Australian infrastructure, from CEOs of top ASX-listed companies to Australia's top brass. Today, we speak with Rebecca Walk, the Chief Executive of Health Infrastructure. Previously Executive Director of Rural and Regional Projects, in this episode she delves into her many years working in country areas to deliver critical health infrastructure, overseeing New South Wales Government's record investment in regional health. Rebecca speaks about the importance of culture in project delivery, the history of health infrastructure, her journey through the public sector and so much more.
1: We know you'll enjoy this one.
2: So Rebecca Walk, welcome to Inside Infrastructure. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do.
1: Thanks and really pleasure to be here thanks to you Adrian and Janice. Um, I'm the Chief Executive of Health Infrastructure and really proud to lead the second largest infrastructure portfolio uh, in the state um, behind transport and the largest health portfolio in the country. My role is really a leadership role to engender fantastic culture in our space so that we deliver great projects with high engagement and future-focused health outcomes for the people of New South Wales.
2: So could you tell us what health infrastructure does? What's it responsible for?
1: So we're a part of New South Wales Health and we're responsible formally for any project which is over $10 million. Um, But that may be a program of works of much smaller projects. So, for instance, it could be the Rural Ambulance Infrastructure Reconfiguration Program, which is a whole um, raft of smaller projects, and we've just had announced the second stage of that, so another $100 million program of uh, ambulance stations in the bush regional and rural areas.
2: So you're responsible for the building and then the maintenance of of the estate, is that right?
1: So originally, and I think our reputation has been around being builders, a delivery, the deliverers of infrastructure. We're now much more than that, we've now been tasked with um, a, a piece of work on asset, um, you know looking at the entire life cycle of assets, so working with local health districts to look at their you know the whole of life. Of, of assets. And so we have a, a role in that to comply with the new uh, treasury policy around asset management procedures. Uh, and we also now have a much stronger role in the precinct space. So we're we're not just builders anymore.
2: So you, you said earlier that um, the largest infrastructure deliverer behind transport, could you just give us a, a, what is the scale? How many hospitals are we talking about? How many people in beds? What's the...
1: So we have about 100 current projects at the moment. Uh, So that's
2: things with people building them now?
1: They're not all in construction. So we go from pre-planning and planning all the way through delivery, commissioning uh, and then into operations. So I think we have 40-odd projects in construction. Our pipeline is now almost $20 billion. This term of government, we are delivering $10.7 billion of works. Um, So they're not all hospitals per se. Some of them are um, Health Ones, which are smaller community health type projects. Some of them are multi-purpose facilities in very small regional or remote communities where they might be a combination of some acute services, a couple of hospital beds and some aged care beds.
3: Health infrastructure is... um just known for being a very sophisticated delivery agency, how do you keep your head across that many types of projects Um, and how do you manage risk across them? Because from what I've seen, some of those hospital builds are the most complex projects around, just in terms of, you know, stakeholders and expectations and the actual builds themselves. I think the answer to all of that is
1: through having a great team, and promoting really um, a a very strong culture. So my personal vision is around if you have a great culture, you get good engagement. If you have good engagement, you'll have great outcomes. Mm -hmm. So that means working with your stakeholders, being respectful, um, a lot of consultation. Um, We have uh, the way our structure is set up, we have a number of regions. Um, So we have... um, Effectively, Sydney Western, Sydney Central, and Northern, and then rural and regional, and each of my team that look after after those spaces is now looking after a business which is, uh, in its own right, bigger than health infrastructure was five years ago. And so, each of those executive directors is looking after six or seven billion dollars worth of work.
3: And and having that outlook, then is it about just the way you engage, or do you end up having to Set up deliberative process. Like, does it slow down the planning process? What What does that look like? I
1: think it's around having um, a series of processes which we follow fairly rigorously. Mm. Um, It doesn't mean you do everything to the letter, and we make mistakes. You know, and it's about. You know, I think I'm 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 strong on the eighty percent. You're better off doing Mm. something and fixing up some things along the way than getting everything right before you actually push the go button. So, you
2: know, we don't, it's not always perfect. That's kind of hard in health, though, isn't it? Because that minimum viable product in health means that Mm. almost by definition, you're taking on some risk that people are going to get less than optimal outcomes.
1: Well, I think there are some processes which you are absolutely diligent about. And an example of that would be the commissioning of medical gases in hospitals Mm. when you're, when you're, finishing a hospital and handing it over. And there's very strict protocols around that, which involve anaesthetists and mm. a number of different um, parts of the system. Um, but that might be different to the risk that you analyse around what the you know, the design layout for, sustain- for the best sustainability option might be. Mm. So yeah. I guess it's yeah. there are varying degrees of acceptable risk yeah. in that
2: space. Mm. Um- we delved into some details, but we should probably take a step back. So, you, you with Health Infrastructure about a year after it was first established, is that so,
1: right? So, my first uh, introduction with Health Infrastructure was in 2008 when we were about 10 people in Chatswood. Uh, and I think we had four or five projects. And a couple of those were PPPs. Um, then, after a couple of rounds of maternity leave, I uh, came back in 2011. Um, And have been with HI since then in various roles from project director, um, director of planning through executive director of rural and regional. Um, I have an absolute passion for the bush and for trying to deliver improved health outcomes in that space. Today is National Sorry Day and uh, I think we're all reminded about our obligations of looking after Aboriginal people, and that's particularly the case in some of our remote areas, about ensuring we get some more equitable care in that space. But, you know, mm-hmm. I think uh, the more that we can do in, in regional, regional and rural areas, the better our system will be. And that's not trying to build tertiary hospitals mm. uh, in a small country town. It's about building the right services and working with districts so that the most contemporary models of delivery of care are able to be provided. Mm-hmm.
2: We'll probably come to the contemporary Mm. models of care later because it's something I know Janice and I are both interested in what Mm. the future is in health. I just want to go back to a little bit of those early times. So you started as a project director, but our research says that you're you're not an engineer. (laughs) What, What are you?
1: Is that a good or a bad thing? I, I have no
2: value judgment. <laughs> I, I know lots of very good engineers. I just, um, landscape architecture, that's what. That is, that's out. true.
1: So um, I'm a landscape architect originally. I worked in infrastructure, uh, in landscaping, went outside on a job in 19, let's not talk about how long ago, <laughs> a long time ago, and didn't come back inside for many years. So I've spent a lot of time in construction. Um, I've had roles in public and private sector, which I think gives me a good range of experience to run health infrastructure as an enterprise.
2: This is a naive question, I guess, but what is a landscape architect?
1: All of the external design that goes with architecture.
2: So, so it's not like the built form, it's the how it fits into an environment?
1: Well, I did a major in uh, urban planning and urban design in my landscape architecture, which I think is of benefit in this role when we're looking at how to fit a hospital into a precinct and what might be the complementary uses and you know, that it's that you're looking at good, solid design principles, not just building a hospital as an island in a suburb or in a town.
2: There's this striking thing about and you go to a newer hospital versus some of the legacy parts of the system, is that they're, they look less like hospitals? And I think that's a really positive change in recent
1: years. I mean... Most people don't enjoy being patients in hospitals.
2: Because mm. typically something bad so happened if, to you. So
1: <laughs> if you can make it a more pleasant place to be, I mean, the research shows that people get better faster. So it's about not having everything stark and white. Um, we now have an arts in health program which isn't just about putting mm. paintings on the wall. It's mm. about involving people in what those spaces are like in different programs it can be music programs, it can be um, Indigenous engagement programs, quite a lot of mental health programs. Um, so it's about making those spaces as good as they can be mm. to make
3: people feel better. Does that change the function of a hospital? Um, and it probably gets into where I was hoping to sort of ask next, which is, you know, how how are hospitals changing? What, what does the future hospital look like and what, what is the constellation of additional services and functions that sit around it?
1: One of the things which we, in life, are becoming, you know, as people, we want to be more involved in our care, whether it's designing your own gym program or what your own home looks like or it's it's about people want to be involved in their care. They want to have a say in how the services are delivered to them um, and that can be also, I mean, we need to harness a lot more digital innovation in that space. and So the services that we can have around having an app that might tell you, if, you're, you know, if you've had a break from your son at soccer, when should you turn up in the fracture clinic so that you're not sitting there on Monday in fracture clinic for seven hours. You could say, okay, we know we're seventh in the queue and that they'll text me half an hour before. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's, it's really simple things like that that can make everyone's life or make their, their healthcare experience a better experience.
3: And so there's some of the innovations that we need to harvest. Does that mean that health is working with a much wider group of businesses? Like, Does it change the way health and health infrastructure uh, uh, engage the private sector and the not-for-profit sector and the technology sector?
1: We're certainly finding
3: there's a lot more opportunity there to
1: collaborate Mm -hmm. with both industry partners, research and education partners uh, around how those services are delivered. One of the challenges that we have is there's a huge capital investment now Mm. Uh, in in hospitals and in healthcare. And we need to be able to maximise the efficiency of that as to how hospitals can afford to be run, you know, the recurrent costing. And if we can collaborate with industry partners around that, then I think there's a lot of opportunity to how to do that more efficiently.
2: Mm. Can I ask about um, COVID-19, the pandemic, to what extent that's accelerated that pathway
1: it certainly has accelerated things like telehealth where a number of clinicians were previously less inclined to to move forward in that space of telehealth mm. uh, and now we all know that zoom is just a way of life for many mm. of us um, so it's accelerated that through necessity um, but there is you know there's and it's also about um, virtual care in many instances which is um, you know one of the pillars of the 20-year health infrastructure strategy that New South Wales Health has is around how do you provide those services differently, um, and that virtual care where you might have be in hospital as a patient for your surgery, but then your follow-up treatments may be able to be done more locally, and some of those may be able to be done um, in your home through virtual. Connection through, with your clinician.
2: Is it a, so? Is it an acceleration of a trend you knew was happening, or is there a diversion from where you thought the infrastructure need would be?
1: I'd say it's probably more the former. It's an acceleration of that, and, and it's also a, a general acceptance of we have to change the way we do things.
3: Has um, it has it changed though? Um, you know, I just remember telehealth always being talked about as a remote service option and i think what's interesting about covid was that people in you know the inner cities were using them and it was based upon what the health need was you know um or the age profile like do, do you feel that it might have changed the ways in which we would use telehealth and would that likely stick beyond the pandemic i
1: think it will stick beyond the pandemic we're finding that now i mean it's hmm. there are many um if you look at an appointment with your GP, for many now, you don't have to go and sit in the waiting room and mm. see your GP face to face. You can elect to have a telehealth appointment. Mm. Um, in the COVID space, many of the admitted COVID patients, uh, unless you're seriously unwell, are monitored in their own homes through the you know, the virtual hospital. Mm. So they might have um, monitoring in their home.
2: I didn't realise that. So so, like, there's equipment delivered to their home that they're hooked up to? Yeah. yeah and that's all just, you know, through your Wi-Fi? Y-
1: yes. <laughs> and, and you oh, are yeah. still deemed to be a patient yeah. mm-hmm. of a particular hospital, um, but you are able to do that in your own home. So, and it's, and it's, a, it's a far more efficient way of, of treating people and it uh, you know, puts them in a much more comfortable space.
2: So you have to map out for me here. So you, you deliver and look after a substantial state of infrastructure in health, and yet a lot of what we're talking about is a low infrastructure intervention, like it's not necessarily people in a hospital for an extended period of time. You spoke about an an app that tells you to come to the hospital half an hour before your appointment, which reduces the size of the need for the waiting room and all these other things. So we've built this huge 30, 50-year infrastructure for a potential future that has much lower demand for infrastructure. Is that right? or?
1: So the challenge for us then is not just building bigger hospitals but building smarter hospitals. So the investment of the infrastructure may still be the same uh, and look, there are different design developments around what is the best design of an inpatient unit, for instance. Should the beds be side by side or should they be toe to toe? What what does that mean a nurse's station might look like? So when we look at sustainability, it's not just around environmental sustainability. It could be around workforce sustainability where you know, if you design something in a particular way, does that mean you need more nurses or fewer nurses? Does it mean you need more cleaners or can you do things in a smarter way so that You know, you need fewer actual people to do things. It's not about, certainly it's not about costing jobs, but it's about is there a better way to do things so you're maximising the efficiency and the services which you're providing.
2: So how much of when you build a hospital is it just a flexible space that will be used for different things over time versus that more specifically designed for a purpose?
1: There are a set of um, guidelines called the Australasian Health Facility Guidelines which give us, you know, for instance, what a standard operating theatre might look Mm -hmm. like or what an inpatient unit might look like or what a dirty utility room might look like. But they, you know, we are testing the boundaries a lot more on those about Mm -hmm. saying what does contemporary care look like Mm -hmm. Um, if you take, you know, an increase in ambulatory services, so where people go to outpatient clinics for things, you know, do you do you need, you know, is there a maximising of shared spaces? How big do your waiting rooms need to be? So there's, you know, there are some developments in that space consistently around improving that, which really depend on how the model of care is going to be delivered.
3: I would love to start talking about your journey to chief executive. So um, you mentioned um, that you'd been the executive director on the regional um, hospitals side of HI. Um, You know, how does that Prior experience inform your approach to being the chief executive of health infrastructure. It, it's it's somewhat of an unusual trajectory going from a regional kind of arm of the of the um, organisation into the leadership role. Um, so, does it give you a different perspective
1: about leadership? There, I think for me the most important thing about leadership is the people, hmm. and that doesn't mean make any difference about whether it's a rural or regional. Portfolio or a metro portfolio. It's about looking after people's well-being. It's about focusing on how we provide the best workplace to enable the you know the strongest results from people. Mm. Um, you know, we, I think, to go to Adrian's earlier point around how has COVID changed what we do. Immediately before COVID, we adopted an agile workplace policy, um, and I th- I'm really proud that we did that because it actually put us in a good position during COVID. You know, we were agile, everyone worked from home, as did everyone across the world, I think. Um, but, but it's really allowed us to normalise a different working space. You know, we promote people whether they, and they do, you'll often find me in the car if you ring and people say, is it okay to talk? And I say, yeah, sure, I'm just on the school run, but chat away, my kids are used to it. Um, Or I might say, can I ring you back in 15 minutes? And I think that is now, you know, and at HI that's the culture we promote. It's a lot about family first, whether it's Mm. around a close friend, you know, young kids um, or aged parents. It's Mm. about what are your needs and how can we best accommodate that Mm. in the workplace. I'm
2: just hoping it's the death of the soup. Once you've (laughs) gone through a process (laughs) of sort of seeing everybody in their own living rooms Mm. in a T-shirt and shorts... Can we get
1: rid of ties? I just, can we agree? It's a long time Aren't since it? I've worn a tie, Adrian. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. It's a long time since I've worn one yeah. as well, but I've decided coming back from a pandemic, there's no way I'm wearing ties anymore except for meetings with ministers and possibly visits to Parliament more generally. But other than that, ties are out.
3: It was really. a strange year last year, sort of, Suddenly being in everybody's living rooms, sometimes in their bedrooms, you know, just seeing so much context for them. I, I just found that the most extraordinary oh, way of yeah. working.
2: I think it brought yeah. us closer to people that you were.
3: Provided working. you had established relationships, yes. Yeah, I think true. for some people, like I just found with new people coming in, like graduates, it was really disorienting for them to not ever have face to face meetings but I think if it's people you've met professionally and suddenly you're seeing their study and you're seeing their kids run in it did it did create an Mm. intimacy.
2: How did you deal Mm. with that with with sort of graduates and you would have stood up a bunch of projects during?
3: Mm. We had our
1: biggest year ever last year during COVID this year will be bigger but we really emphasised how we kept our project offices running Mm. um, which was a challenge because you know, the premier was very clear we didn't, from an economic perspective, we couldn't slow construction down. So we had to keep our sites running. It was about making sure that we were keeping people safe. It was about being respectful about what they needed in that. So it was things like more lunchroom facilities, additional vertical lifts for construction workers. Um, and it was, we had a very big year last year. And, you know, I think it normalised. That balance between discipline and agility and mm. flexibility. So we encouraged people to work from home where they could. We closed our, um, you know, our main office, but we still had to keep our project offices running. And you can't expect construction workers and project managers to be on site if you if your own people aren't on site as mm. well. So it was quite a tricky balance for for some time.
2: And did you have any of the kind of COVID surge facility stuff that you had to stand up?
1: We stood up a project management office overnight in March of last year. Mm -hmm. What was really pleasing for me as chief executive was we set up that project management office to help um, the entire state response, but it didn't affect our business as usual. So we did a Mm -hmm. seamless backfilling because everyone just got in and got involved about what had to be done. Um, But we had a role, we had four or five legs to that role, so we accelerated a number of projects. So we accelerated the completion of the new acute services building at Westmead uh, and a couple of regional hospitals at Maxville and in Mudgee because at that stage, you know, Italy was an absolute disaster, the UK was very bad and we didn't know what was going to be coming and Mm -hmm. facing Australia. So we accelerated projects, Um, we looked at projects that we could retrofit in different spaces. So for instance, the, there was a building at Royal North Shore Hospital, which was a previous clinical building that had been converted to administration. We converted it back so that mm. it could be used for, for COVID surge. Thankfully, none of that was ever mm. required. We were involved in the um, the negotiations with the private hospitals around commercial agreements for mm. is surge capacity as it, ne- as it was required in bed space. We are involved in uh, in those early days with setting up hotel accommodation to be used potentially as less acute hospital spaces. Um, And we also designed a temporary or a number of different temporary hospitals. So we designed um, a major temporary hospital to put into um, Sydney showgrounds at Olympic Park. Uh, and we based that on the Nightingale Hospital in the UK, which which we you know we consulted. Spent a few Sunday evenings, I think, talking with <laughs> with colleagues in the UK about lessons learned, what works, what doesn't work. Um, and thankfully, we've not needed any of that. But that's part of pandemic planning. You mm. hope you're never going to need mm. it. Mm. Uh, and we designed a similar sort of facility in a regional areas, and then a number of bolt-on additional facilities for for hospitals, you know, an extra a 20-bed type facility. And again, thankfully, we haven't needed them. But we've also, there are some ongoing design changes which we've made around air conditioning and different different design of spaces so that should you need to have a particular COVID pod in a hospital, you can have that without isolating then the whole of your
2: intensive care unit. So there are, there are even though we didn't need, those facilities, thankfully, in the end, there are things where we're building a more pandemic resilient health system. Absolutely. Now. Yep. And are they are they big things, or are they optimisations on the edges? Like, what did you learn from it that you didn't expect? I guess is my question.
1: I think it's around segregation of spaces, yeah. um, so that you can continue to operate in a business as usual hospital, but still have COVID patients in those spaces. And there are, you know, in mechanical ventilation and we've been working with the teams around hotel quarantine, what should, so we are advisors in that space around how should, you know, what separation of air should there be and so I think we've, you know, we've got a role, we've we've had a fairly broad role in a number of different spaces during COVID and I think it's really helped us in a response and, and I think our agility in that space
2: has helped. Um, Now, the next question I'm going to ask might go to Janice as well, because I know she was involved with the 20-year health strategy that um, you played a big part in that was released six or so months ago. One of the other inputs into the future of healthcare is an ageing population with more chronic illnesses and the like. How does that sort of changing demographic change your, and I guess just general population growth, how does that change the way you think about the future of health.
1: So, our corporate strategy for health infrastructure was released a few months ago. That's underpinned by the 20-year strategy, which you're referring to, uh, and it's you know that follows some key trends. It requires new ways of thinking and planning the delivery of health services and facilities. You know, and that the number of pillars that we have in our corporate strategy is around services, efficient delivery of those services, who we partner with what our people and culture are around. And then in each of those, we have priorities around how we maximise the best efficiencies in that space.
2: And your answer, Janice?
3: <laughs> well, more questions, really. Oh, go on, I, 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 I think it's really interesting and, you know, we're living through such a period of innovation in health um, and that that strategy was a first insight into where New South Wales Health would take this. Um, and I, I'm keen to hear your thoughts about, um like you know how does digital health and all of the sort of telehealth models and the different va- like service models we've talked about you know what what does that mean for the hospital itself what does the hospital look like 20 years from now is it much the same as it is today or is it you know doing more doing less than it is today i think for us
1: the challenge, and I think we touched on it a bit earlier, is there's so much capital investment now Mm. and the pace with which we're running at means there isn't a lot of time to stop and breathe and think about that innovation. So it's how do we best collaborate with our partners Mm. to harness that now so that digital innovation, for instance, it might be a statewide service or it might be something which we just run in one facility. What does that look like and how can we future-proof so that you know, in five years when the next technology is around. Um, I remember when my sister was in hospital probably 12 years ago, I was using a BlackBerry. Mm. Now, my kids wouldn't even know what a BlackBerry is. (laughs) Um, But, you know, Mm. an iPhone wasn't around then. And you think of the changes in that decade. Totally. We Mm. can't imagine what the changes in the next decade is going to be, but it's around trying to get, you know, the maximised flexibility Mm. so that we can come back and retrofit later.
3: In the planning of that do you have these difficult conversations where you're thinking right this whole area of medicine which is currently a ward over here might not even be needed in a hospital in the future it will just be an injectable medicine or do you know like how do you plan for that level of disruption? It's around again
1: flexibility and agility I think so you know there are advances in medical research it's around people wanting personalized care it's about social shifts and you know, different demographics in different areas, you know, and, and that technical and digital innovation, you can only plan for it by providing in the built form flexibility of spaces.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, you know, you might have, we have standard floor-to-ceiling floor to heights which gives you a certain amount of space in your ceiling space to come back and do other services later. We have, um, you know, as a might seem a minor example, but we design hospital car parks on a certain grid pattern with a certain slab-to-slab level so that later, should it be required, they can be retrofitted into hospital spaces. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's providing that sort of agility and flexibility. It's also looking at, in a campus and a precinct, what other things could go into those spaces that over time, you know, are different, different to being a hospital per se but provide a different service model within a precinct for for all of the people in the communities that use those precincts.
2: I wanted to talk about that change in Mm. framing of a hospital towards kind of health precincts that's happened over the last few years, few in New South Wales, and I'm sure there's others around the country and around the world as well. But could you maybe tell us about that idea of going from being a a hospital to more of a campus-type approach?
1: Well, the Premier has a very big focus at the moment on, on the Westmead, or well, a couple of precincts, but Westmead is one that we are very involved in. And that's around, you know, at Westmead, there's an adult hospital, there's kids' hospital, there are a number of medical research institutes. There's you know, mm. uh, some space at Cumberland now, which has uh, you know, an innovation hub. Around that for startup businesses, there's a innovation centre in collaboration with Sydney University, and we're looking at what are the other partners that could be in, involved in that space, and that's working with people like Amy Brown and Investment New South Wales. Who should we be attracting in the market globally? How do we best market New South Wales for economic uplift? You and and. and What does that look like in that space? And I think it's about large and small. It's about different uses of spaces. It's around collaboration in a number of different areas to actually harness that innovative
2: thinking. So how do you change the the culture of, say, your organisation to go from thinking about building a widget to thinking about a, a space where other people build some widgets? It's about the people that you have
1: involved. So it's about having the right subject matter experts injected at the right time so we now have different commercial expertise to look at investment attraction we have different um, precinct type designers that are you know more
2: experienced any landscape architects
3: (laughs) only one that i know (laughs) (laughs) is it is that approach working so are you seeing different types of businesses or different types of talent coming to australia as, as a result of that model Yes, we are and I think
1: it's fair to say that I'm not currently expert in that space because it's previously been run by others within health but we have a much stronger role in that and it's about Mm. um, sort of interweaving the infrastructure with the other opportunities in that space and so we've been, by the Secretary, we've been asked to have a much stronger role in that commercial space so we're bolstering the people. So to answer your question, Adrian, how do you do it? You do it by having the right people on your team. And you do it by collaborating with other people across government uh, in other agencies to make sure that you are working together to get those best outcomes and then you do it by collaborating
3: with industry. I was looking at health and, and actually it, it is a bit of a standout because it has a lot of very senior women in, in the cluster um, and, um, and it leads me to a two-fold question which is, you know, are women doing well in health? And and does that change the culture would be my first question. But the second question I wanted to ask was I know that you've done quite a lot in the space of mentoring and uh, I'd love to hear some of your thoughts about how health is bringing up that next generation of women as well.
1: Well, there are, you know, the facts speak for themselves. There are quite a lot of strong women within health with people like the Secretary Elizabeth Coff, mm. Dr Kerry Chance, Susan Pierce, who's been very involved in in the COVID response uh, and the vaccination r- response, but in health infrastructure, you know, mm. we are really trying hard around diversity. That's not just around diversity of women; mm. it's around diversity in age, in cultural backgrounds. But I think it is important to know: yes, I'm a woman who's a chief executive. Every person that's appointed in our business needs to be appointed based on merit. Mm. You know, they don't get a job because they're a woman; they get an opportunity, and if they are the best person for that job, then they will get the job and I think for me that's an equally as important message as saying we have a lot of women that work in our business. You know mm. we have a lot of young people that work in our business, we've got a number of older people, we've got a number of you know people from different cultural backgrounds, we've got some people who are refugees, you know, we've you know got Aboriginal people. It's about diversity and providing opportunity, providing a safe workplace which promotes you know, well-being, which includes cultural well-being and diversity.
3: Mm. And what sort of advice do you give? So young people or people from minority backgrounds, you know, people with different gender orientation, like what? what how do you what, what? What advice do you give them as they navigate their careers? Be brave and bold. Have a go. Um, be
1: ambitious. Uh, being successful at anything involves hard work um, and surround yourself with people whose advice you trust Uh, and I think with those sorts of things you can really achieve a lot Um, and it's about treating people the right way as well. So it's a lot about respect, collaboration, openness, empowering people to get things done and I think we talked about it a little bit earlier You don't have to get everything right all the time. Have a go. Um, And, you know, working with people, you've got your back. Um, You know, I will support anyone who makes a mistake if they've tried hard. And Most people come from the right base. Everyone's well-intentioned. People don't intentionally make mistakes. So if, if you're providing a safe environment and as chief executive, if I'm in a position where I'm saying, that's okay, you know, I've got your back,
2: I'm going to jump back briefly to um, the, you spoke about flexibility in the way that you deliver buildings, or you mentioned car parks. Um, a, lot of the, a lot of the projects health infrastructures, or, sorry, not a lot. Some of the projects health infrastructures delivered over the last few years have been more on a concession-based model, PPPs with a, a sort of long-term fixed operating component to them, including and excluding clinical services. There is a perception that those things are perhaps less flexible. Um, is that a fair perception?
1: Well, if you take the most recent example of Northern Beaches Hospital, I don't think it's fair. I think the way it's it's working by all accounts is you know, very efficient and advantageous to everybody. I think the use of PPPs is often driven by the government of the day. Mm. Um, And I think what we are focusing on now is not PPP in the truest sense but more around commercial partnerships. What are the other opportunities that you can put into a space? Who can you collaborate with? What does that mean, you know, for a precinct, whether it's collaborating with a university, which then attracts other investment, you know, to give you a a whole... Because you have got research partners that then gives you a pipeline, which may then give you a leg up into... Manufacturing, whether it's vaccine manufacturing or different, you know, gene therapies, and there are all sorts of different opportunities in that
2: space. Do you think we'll see cycles over time where you see traditional PPPs re-emerge? If I can,
1: never say never, Adrian. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. okay.
2: But it's but the cycle has been sort of there was a a throng of private capital driven projects towards more traditional procurement. Now I think so.
1: And Mm -hmm. look, if you look at capital at the moment. Money's cheap, and I know that um when I was at the infrastructure Sydney Money Herald Infrastructure Summit, which the premier spoke on, it's exactly what she said. Money's cheap at the moment, oh. so you know it depends what stacks at any particular time as to whether it's an advantageous decision, whether it's feasible or not.
3: Yeah, I mean I, I sort of had a similar question in mind what is the future of PPPs and your observation is quite right, like it does tend to there tend to be trends or waves. Um, you know, but but in in the current environment, I guess, you know, w- what are the trends around how to manage some of the growing risks and capacity issues in the market? That you know, the infrastructure market is running quite hard um, from a
2: delivery. Yeah, from yeah. a
3: delivery and procurement point of view. So, do, do you find that there that that you're evolving your model for engaging contractors and for delivering those? Um, we are. I think projects.
1: HI has always been, well, in relation to risk, it's it's letting the partner who is best placed to manage that risk have it. Mm. So, uh, you know, on actual physical risks and contamination, for instance, we collaborate with industry. If, if we know it's there, we'll get a contractor to price that risk. Mm. If we don't know it's there, it's best for us to hold that risk because a contractor will just price it in as to what the likelihood is that it happens. If you look at different delivery models, I think we always try and de-risk our delivery. So that might mean doing early and enabling works on a site, having different packages, having a number of smaller packages and then one major package for your main works. Um, You know, it's it's about how you can best deliver. Mm. It it involves who's who's best placed to keep design risk. At what stage should that design be novated from what we hold with consultants to what a contractor might hold? Um, and there's you know, often a debate among consultants about whether they'd like to be novated to a builder or to a contractor or not. Mm. And I think it's, again, it's horses for courses.
2: Mm. Um, on the PPP thing, it's, you mentioned as the governor that it's interesting that Victoria's procuring two major hospitals right now, both through PPPs mm. um, Footscray and the other one, the name of which escapes me, Frankston. Mm. Uh, so, Footscray, Footscray and Frankston Hospital through PPPs, but we're not doing any major PPPs at the delivery point here. Do you, is that, but they're both in the same market. So, is, is that, do you think, just reflective of a particular point or maturity curve for government, or is it something else?
1: I think it probably is largely around that the maturity of government, different decision makings, how much, you know, what the. Um, response the, the fiscal responsibilities of government at the time um, you know there's been a, through stimulus there's been a lot of money injected into the new south wales economy and some of that is through different hospital projects and we have you know, a number of projects which have been accelerated through stimulus funding um, a number of projects which have you know, been brought forward uh, mm. in that space um, so we, you know, as a couple of examples in that, we would partner earlier through an ECI contract delivery model to get a contractor involved early. I think part of that whole stimulus of the economy at the moment is the market's fairly volatile as far as pricing goes. We've Our own experience at the moment is some projects have come in much better than we were anticipating. We've had some really good savings, but there are a couple where it's like, wow, we didn't expect the market to tell us that. That's, so that's interesting. It's that's, not that's, less hot. predictable. Mm. It's just
2: it's volatile. Mm.
1: That's mm. what we're finding at the moment. Yeah. okay. But, but what it does mean in that space is that we're locking contractors in. A big part of it is communicating with the market what our pipeline is, so staying very involved in industry mm. briefings around this is what we have coming up mm. to both consultants and contractors. We're talking with them about what their preference projects would be so that we're getting our tender lists right. Mm. You know, we... Um, very involved in making sure that we comply with the Premier's 10-point plan. So for on our major projects, we only have three tenderers. Um, and, and we're getting much better responses from the market in that space because they know they've got a better chance of winning.
2: You do always compete at the point of a project. It's not a panel-type approach. It's more of a you'll get.
1: We often run a statement of participation or we've just gone out to the market mm. for both um, architects and architects project managers and contractors to say here's our pipeline over the next 12 months tell us which projects are your target projects Mm. yeah so that we know what they're interested in they know what their opportunities are and we're actually doing a better job at getting the right tender panels together to get better outcomes
2: are there any particular projects or suites of projects you're working on at the moment that are kind of case studies for the best way to do stuff
1: I think um, Concord Hospital is a really interesting example. We've got a project there which is quite close to completion. We were pretty brave in December 2018 in um, asking the market to price a five-day working week. Mm. Um, And we've done that where there's some research that we're doing jointly with... um, Roberts and Co., who are the contractors in that space, which University of New South Wales are doing, which just shows the massive improvement in productivity and well-being. um, Feedback from families of workers about how much better it is for them. But interestingly, it hasn't affected program quality or productivity in that space. So I mean that's that's an example of how do we do things differently. Um, to do it, and you know, I'd, I'd absolutely do it again.
2: It might just be worth explaining what the the problem you're solving there, because you say mm. five day working week. There will be some What's people listening to this mm. that would say, "Hold on." So my the construction five
1: the construction industry traditionally is a six day week, or at least a five and a half day week. Mm. Um, and what we were interested in is if people, if if construction sites are only open Monday to Friday. Excuse me. And if you get a commitment from your contractor and they from their subcontractors that they are not working five days on your project and then a sixth day on another project, what is the effect of that on the productivity? Mm. And what is the effect of that on the well-being of the workers and their families? And what we're finding is it's a great response, uh, and it's it's really worked.
2: It's worked well. We spoke about gender diversity earlier. Um, I imagine that a five day working week is a more family friendly absolutely approach for mothers and fathers alike. Are you seeing is that extending into benefits for the kind of workforce composition or and culture and that kind of?
1: We're finding that the culture of it, you promote you know we've had feedback that a worker didn't get to a single sports game of their child before this and they've managed to go to every game or a number of games. This season. So it's mm-hmm. it's things which seem simple to us, but actually, you know, promote healthy families for if it means you can go and see your primary school age kids play sport and be involved in that. Um, you know, and there's it's it's about different amenities which promote again gender diversity on sites. Um, but it's mm-hmm. providing you know, there's age diversity, there's retraining opportunities of um, I can think of an example on a site where I met a woman who was an electrician. She would have been a woman in her 50s, I'd, you right. know, late 50s. She'd come back from what she considered to be a menial job, trained, been been you know, nurtured in that and was now a qualified electrician and loving, mm-hmm. her, loving her prospects. Oh,
2: great.
3: Um, can we talk about... Um... I'd be keen to hear what health infrastructure is doing uh, to to push towards net zero. Uh, so, what does it mean for across the program from a sustainability yeah, perspective? Sustainability. Net we zero
1: have we work with a number of um, local health districts who ha- now have a mandate towards net zero. Sustainability for us, you know, traditionally, we haven't gone for a green star rating. It's about what's. Good building design. It's about orientation. It's about having deep window reveals so that you don't have Western sun belting in. Um, but we now, um, we have, a, you know, sustainability is one of the pillars of our corporate strategy around how do we get more out of that. Um, it's around different energy solutions. It's around workforce sustainability as well. It's around better building materials, um, so it's it's doing, it's doing about everyone doing what they can in every
2: part of the business. Mm. You mentioned your passion for the bush and the regions earlier on. Um, on the climate change theme, there is impacts from climate change probably largely felt in those regional areas around the health campuses you're delivering. Is there anything you're changing the way you're doing your business from a climate change perspective in those regional areas? I
1: think it's it's always around good design principles and we talked about earlier about having hospitals being a nicer place to be it's things like openable windows in areas it's about different indoor and outdoor spaces it's around you know we have um, maternity areas or mental health areas or any different areas that we can which have courtyard spaces that people can um, both spend time in but also have their families visit in so it's and it's around you know, natural cooling around landscape spaces and so I think it's it's not particularly different in rural areas other than the scale of the buildings which we're building they're yeah. often smaller so they're often single storey which means you know there are more indoor outdoor
2: opportunities. Um, you would be quite rare, I imagine, in a leader in the public sector who is not permanently based in Sydney. Does that change, like, you know, you have a rural yeah, perspective. I, I, Does it change the way you think about this stuff?
1: Um, I think it gives me a broader perspective around what the important things are to a number of different communities. Um, so I commute from the north coast. I work from home some of the time. I work. I travel around our project offices so that I'm in, you know, all over the state. Um, you know, I think... I'm lucky. I've got the best of both worlds.
2: And how many pairs of RM Williams do you own?
1: We were just counting that before. It's either four or
2: five at the moment. So I've got a long way to catch up. Do you
3: wear them all at any one period of time? I'm not a centipede, so I only wear (laughs) two at a time. (laughs) But as you're like, would you wear one pair on a Saturday, one on a Sunday, or do you just... It seems like an awful lot of pairs of boots. (laughs) This is my only
1: observation. Depends what goes that's with funny. what. <laughs> yeah. How
3: right.
2: many pairs of right. Iron Williams do you travel with when you go around the state?
1: <laughs> Two normally.
2: Two. Oh, it. that's a bit different <laughs> colours, right? Not yeah,
1: like, yeah, blue suede or black leather. Yeah, okay.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to have to buy some blue suede ones now to catch up with you.
3: <laughs> I'm interested in about how best to service remotely, and and sometimes you want these really great centralized, you know, centres of excellence sometimes you want really close to, to communities, local responsive services. Like, is there, how do you get that balance when you're looking at regional hospitals, regional infrastructure? Um, and does that balance change over time uh, with technology? I think it will change over
1: time with technology because we talked earlier about increased virtual care. But mm. It's about having access of services for different populations. So mm. we have small multi-purpose Facilities which we talked about, which has you know, a combination of acute care and aged care beds. It's around having different community health, outreach services, and then you might have a, a regional referral hospital, um, you know, a hospital the sort of scale of Armidale, which then might refer to a base hospital in Tamworth. And then if something's significant, that patient might be referred to John Hunter Hospital in Newcastle or to a tertiary hospital in Sydney. Mm. Is that
3: more networked than we might have been 20 years ago?
1: I think with the advance in technology, it's different services are provided in different spaces. I think mm. it's... And that devolution of, of healthcare to local health districts. But they all collaborate with each other and it is about where the service is best available and then what services can be provided to people closer to home as they're recovering.
2: Mm. Um, I don't know if this is a controversial question, but is, is there a perception that telehealth is a like a lower... Standard of care
1: it's probably a question for the community about whether mm. it's a lower standard of care. I think it there are certain things you can do virtually and there are certain things which you can't and yeah. it's and it's around you know, and it's appropriate for some types of consultations or care but not for others. Mm. Um, you know it's a bit like I've noticed a few times lately you, you meet someone. Face to face now that you haven't seen after twelve months of Zoom, and you might say, "I'd forgotten you were really tall." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But you know, you only get a certain dimension if you're looking at a screen. Yeah. Mm. Whereas it's different face to face. So I think it really is just depends on what it what it is the service that you're trying to achieve. And I don't think anyone is ever suggesting telehealth is the answer for everything. It's that it mm. it is more efficient and provides you a different service in a, in a number of varying you know scenarios.
2: So. I, I, I perhaps incorrectly think of telehealth as something when you're, you're already interacting with the formal health system, but there's lots of areas of public policy where we know an early intervention outside of a traditional setting can have dramatic impacts through prevention or whatever it might be. Um, you mentioned $20 billion of capital spend over about four years.
1: That's the size of our planning the, pipeline. The planning pipeline. Our, our spend over the four years is 10.7.
2: Okay, so a couple of billion a year. Uh, how much of that, uh, are we, is it the right attention to be placing on building stuff as opposed to taking a small amount of that money and putting it into more preventative type interventions?
1: Well, I think it's about collaborating with the health system as a, as a whole about how should that service be delivered. Um, We do work with eHealth, we do work with HealthShare around the procurement of different models. We're looking at different statewide services in that digital space uh, and it's around, if you take telehealth, you you said, is it a lesser thing? There have just been new cameras put in, I think, every every regional emergency department. So if there's a trauma patient that's come in, um, whether it's from a farm accident or a car accident or whatever the case may be, that can be beamed directly to, for instance, you know, a, a specialist surgeon at RPA to give you advice. Right there, where well, they're right there. It turns on automatically. It's it's on the spot, having that doctor with you in the room in many respects. Mm. Um, where you might have, you know, the the hospital model in that small town might be of a, a a GP VMO, so a local doctor who comes in under those circumstances. You know, but you're accessing absolute specialist care. You know, which gives the patient a much better chance of a great outcome.
2: One of the things I'm intrigued by by our conversation is that it stands in stark contrast to lots that we have where you, all of your responses around infrastructure relate to the service, not the buildings. And mm. well, we have a, these podcasts and broader conversations. Everybody's talking about like how great the bridge is or how great the tunnel is. <laughs> but every time, every time you answer a question, you talk about, the service yeah. i don't know that i've got a question in that but like do you just think about it differently or do you not like buildings or that's <laughs> why
1: i love building yeah. it's about building the right building to get the right outcome so i've spent more time kicking around in steel cap boots with a hard hat <laughs> on than i have in, a, in in a suit at barangaroo yeah um, so it's it's around
3: making sure that we're building the right things. So I think, it's, but, but it, I think what's interesting about the sort of service health, uh, the service slash infrastructure divide is, like, if you look at transport, so much of the cost is, is around the actual build and the asset itself, whereas in health it's actually smaller relative to the service mm. that's provided. So I, I think the focus ends up being on the actual service interaction, the patient, you know, it, it, it is a slightly different discussion. And I think our focus mm. needs to be on that recurrent
1: component to make sure we're spending the capital in a really sensible way yeah. to allow it to be affordable to run. Yeah,
3: yeah. I mean, it goes to a question I had which was around, like, you know, when you design a health facility and you think about agility and, you know, the ability to remodel it in the future or you know, what new systems or new, like, technology it might need inside of its walls, does it sometimes feel like you're the tail wagging the dog because you might actually be moving ahead of where practitioners are at that point in time? I think to go to Adrian's
1: telehealth example, Mm. that was absolutely the case. The technology was there before COVID but there was a reluctance by a number of clinicians that said the patient's got to come in and sit in front of me in a consult room. Now, that's changed by necessity Mm-hmm. And I think we'll see more and more of that.
2: Do, is, so, is your future rather than being a, a built form infrastructure provider more of a technology provider?
1: I think we'll have a stronger advisory role. Mm. Um, we'll have, and we've got a stronger role in that whole of life asset planning piece, assisting the districts and the networks around how they need to be doing that asset management, how that needs to be informing what the capital should be spent on so that it's not just you know we need a new hospital here what should it look like it's what is the life what is the actual life expectancy of facility xyz and therefore when do we need to plan to build a new hospital in that location
2: Hmm. i have my i have my closing question
1: go for it oh god is that a tricky one
2: (laughs) as a a landscape architect who, as we've come to understand, is um, obsessed with service delivery <laughs> but interested in the built form. Uh, what is your favourite sort of infrastructure and why?
1: I was fortunate enough to work for NASA for a couple of years, not as a landscape architect, think, <laughs> but on their leadership program. And I worked out that it really doesn't matter what infrastructure you're working on. We're all people, so I was working on a leadership program with a bunch of really wacky rocket scientists. <laughs> cool. but, but at the end of the day, and it was a fantastic experience. But at the end of the day, they were just people. Right,
2: cancel the whole podcast. I want to talk about NASA. I know I want to <laughs> talk right, about NASA. So you, as you, as well. were, you, you worked at NASA. Well, What's your in,
1: role when you were there? I was one of the presenters
2: on their leadership program. Mm. So, so you, so you. Taught rocket scientists leadership.
1: That was the ambition. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It was about. Yeah. It was great. It was yeah. a fantastic program to be involved with. How did
3: you get? How did you get that position? What happened?
1: It was an, actually an opportunity which arose when I was doing my masters in project management at UTS, oh, right. and one of the guest lecturers ran the training and development program at NASA. So it was just an opportunity which presented itself that I thought was too good to refuse.
2: So are you saying your favourite sort of infrastructure is rocket launching infrastructure? <laughs> yeah. <is> that
1: <laughs> no, <I'm, I> just, <laughs> that was what I was going to say, but I think I'd have to say my favourite type of infrastructure is providing different infrastructure for communities to make better communities. Like I'm passionate about working in health because it's providing great outcomes. It's providing mm-hmm. better things for more people. It's about making people's lives better.
2: I mean, it's a great answer, but I mm. wish it was rocket launchers. <laughs> like that, like we've had lots of tunnels, yeah. lots of bridges, but rocket launchers mm. would have nailed that question. Yeah. Um,
3: Can I ask one question? Just, a, just about the Olympics work that you did, I, I read um, in an article you, you really attributed to the 2000 Olympics your discipline and your meticulousness at work. So what what sort of led to that? Like what was that like going through that? Period of time. Well, the opening ceremony was
1: always going to be on the fifteenth of September two thousand, so we couldn't move that. Mm. Um, I was very fortunate to work with Bob Lees at that time, um, and he was a great believer in getting things done. That you needed to be disciplined with processes, but have a go. So you know the eighty percent rule that we talked about earlier. Mm. You know that was an absolute Bob Lees mantra. You know you're better off doing something than doing nothing so mm. start your planning get the right people around you and the right teams you, you set off on that journey and then you can fix up some bits and pieces along the way but you you know you really need to you, you get going and it's around that well it's it's a, it's that balance of discipline and
2: agility mm. we we just had a thing called Queensland Infrastructure Week and in Brisbane's mm. staring down the barrel of potentially winning the 2032 Olympics and Paralympics, and there's so much focus on this idea that it's a there's a date and it's going to happen, and that kind of everybody coalesces around it. So it's interesting. Your like your go to for that is that it was happening that day so we had to deliver it all. Yeah, there's maybe a parallel with things like a pandemic where there's a common enemy or a common yeah. outcome. You everybody wants to achieve that just lets you kind of cut through the.
1: And I think that's one of the things I was proud of during that pandemic response was that health infrastructure could help in that space because we can, it's about how you get it done. It's not about necessarily following the process, you know, a very linear process. It's about getting, harnessing some bright young minds and about how do we do this the best way? What else can we think of? And, And then overlaying that with some experience and saying, what's the best way to do this?
2: Uh, well I think that's a great note to finish on. Thank you Rebecca Walk for um for joining us on Inside Infrastructure.
1: Thanks Adrian and Janice for having me. It's been a great chat. Thanks, I've really enjoyed it.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Inside Infrastructure podcast. We hope you enjoyed our conversation with Rebecca Walk. Please make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Leave us a rating and review or comment on LinkedIn. And as always, please feel free to send your suggestions to Adrian or myself. Your feedback is invaluable. Join us again next month for another conversation with one of Australia's infrastructure leaders.